Welcome to impactboom.org. We search the globe to find the people, stories, ideas, and inspiration to help you create maximum positive impact. Each week, Impact Boom brings you thought-provoking interviews with world-leading practitioners passionate about creating positive social change. These designers, social entrepreneurs, educators, innovators, thinkers, and doers share their projects, initiatives, thoughts, and insights on creating a better world. You can find all the stories, links, and other great content at impactboom.org. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter for the latest updates, or subscribe to the newsletter or on iTunes. Thanks for listening to episode 79 of Impact Boom. My name's Tom Allen, and I'm passionate about bringing the latest interviews and insights to help you create positive social impact. Today, we're speaking with Sarah Chisholm. Sarah has worked in community development and social enterprise for 18 years. Previous roles include the manager of the Resource Recovery Australia, building a team to transfer the learnings and model of a 25-year reuse, repair and recycling social enterprise based in Forster, Tungkari in New South Wales. The co-founder of Green Connect, a social enterprise that recovers waste, grows fair food and provides labour hire opportunities for refugees and young people in the Illawarra of New South Wales. She's the founding board member of The Social Outfit, which is a fashion label and store in Sydney that celebrates the skills and diversity of new migrant and refugee communities. In her current role, Sarah manages strategy, partnerships and communications for Community Resources Limited, a 30-year not-for-profit community development organisation that has undergone a unique series of mergers and acquisitions to become the home of RRA, Soft Landing Mattress Recycling, Green Connect and Waste Aid Australia. Sarah is also one quarter of the Money Laundering Ladies, exploring an artist-run laundromat that provides flexible employment for artists between gigs. Sarah has postgraduate degrees in social science and policy from the University of New South Wales and business growth and innovation from Sydney University Business School. So on today's podcast, we'll discuss Sarah's views on the current state of the social enterprise sector in Australia, particularly from a waste and resource recovery perspective. We'll get Sarah's insights and perspective on social innovation opportunities, and we'll hear what Sarah believes can be done to create more sustainable cities. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Nice to be here. So to keep things off, Sarah, could you please share a little bit about your background and what led you to working in the social enterprise sector? Sure. So, yeah, I have worked in the community arts-based and community development more generally for 20 years. But it's nice to reflect on what I think is my first social enterprise experience was a place called Streetwise Communications. And looking back, it's interesting how at home I felt when I found them. Um, So they were a social enterprise before that term was coined. And they were a uh, fantastic organisation that worked in partnership with Aboriginal artists and writers and government departments to develop comic-based educational resources. And they were in Redfern as a really small but tight team. And I really learnt a lot from that team. Uh, And in fact, all the people in that team have gone on to work in the sector in great ways ever since. And I think if I look back, the way they did that, they, they sold the resources they wanted to make to government people that purchased them. But the, what they were trying to do was deal with social inequity and access to information. And so they were particularly keen on working with First Australians in the process, as well as developing resources that First Australians picked up and read and enjoyed. And so a lot of that was about telling educational messages, but in a yarn and in a comic-based way. But 
the thing I learned there was you could just slap out a flyer or a comment in a week with an internal team, but we would go through, it was all about our process, which involved Aboriginal artists and writers going out and spending time in the community. The resource would end up being distributed in. We would do a lot of work with the government department and the community to understand what that process was, and then there would also be a draft comic done, and then that would be taken back to the community to do feedback groups to get their input, so that when that resource finally was distributed, it was in the language um, people were represented and saw themselves in the comic and they understood the message and, and they kind of owned it. Mm. And that's a much more expensive resource to make, but we really, really were really committed to that, what the process was. And if you didn't want to pay for that process, we didn't want to make your resource. And we did get a lot of repeat business from people that understood it once they went through that process. Once they got it and they got it, that, that magazine was, was a hit when it was distributed. So that was a fantastic experience with 50% Aboriginal staff and the commitment to social equity and what we're trying to do was also in the process and in reflected in our team. The other, I guess, that was the first social enterprise before it was sort of a thing um, and there have been social enterprises and co-ops you know, for a very long time that have been doing this type of work. Then I was living in the Illawarra working with an organisation looking to help refugees that arrived access uh, work experience and work in the Australian workforce and there was a real issue with a town with such high unemployment already to achieve that and also quite big cultural gaps in, in what work looks like and understanding tax and superannuation which are all good things yeah uh, but just kind of walking people through that you know some endemic racism to be frank about getting through through the job process so in in the end there was a, a a business opportunity, I heard about this woman, Robin Murphy, who's a fantastic environmental and social entrepreneur, again, before the term was around, who had actually been uh, the environmental manager at Blue Scope Steel, who um, over the years of 1980 to 1994 had actually taken BHP to eventually the High Court about not employing women in the steelworks because she wanted to work in the steelworks. Mm -hmm. But what was great about Robin is over those 14 years, and she did win that case, and it was called Jobs for Women. She was also really brought in migrant women in the area because um, there was a lot of different migrant communities in the Wollongong and she had a, an embassy and she had translators and the migrant women, I went to a lunch six months ago where she's still, that core group of women including migrant women are about to, uh, fundraising to make a documentary about that case and that they won um, and Robin obviously did get a job in the steelworks in the end as well as a lot of migrant women. So mm -hmm. interestingly when I was working on creating jobs for newly arrived refugees, which we were seeing people from Burma and Sudan and Somalia and new countries arriving um, and really wanting to work and contribute. Um, someone told me about Robin and that she'd offered a little bit of work for, for the refugees I was looking to create work for at some festivals in waste management. Yeah. And everyone kept saying, you've got to meet Robin. And it was interesting, again, like when I met the people at Streetwise, I felt really at home. When I met Robin, which she was like, why didn't I hear about social enterprise 20 years ago? This is everything I believe in. You know, a business that actually improves, its, you know, the externalities of the business and, you know, the work is in environmental repair and the job opportunities are inclusive and supportive of people with barriers to work. So mm. we actually cooked up what is now Green Connect and she brought all of that environmental and operational expertise and was out with the team doing the first jobs and she was with translators and she just, it was just brilliant. So they, they were my first two experiences and it's interesting to reflect that, you know, it came from a social justice perspective but where there was a business opportunity. Yeah. 
Really, really interesting to hear. That's for sure, especially, uh, you know, looking back almost 20 years and, and how in many ways they were, they were operating in that space uh, without the social enterprise label. So yeah. when we talk about Community Resources Limited, you've just mentioned Green Connect, but, you know, Community Resources made up of social enterprises like Resource Recovery Australia, Soft Landing, and also Waste Aid Australia. And these are, you know, four really interesting ventures. So can you please share more about these enterprises and, and what they do? Yeah, sure. So first, and we haven't tended to talk much about community resources, and my new role is really representing the whole the whole organisation. So yeah. I will say that that's a fantastic organisation that's probably undersold what they've been doing quietly for 30 years too. So mm. that's a community development organisation that started in 1987 in Foster Tunkari, so Warramai land. Particularly, it's a thin labour market and with a high Aboriginal population, and they actively saw industries that were, you know, low on capital investment but high on jobs um, yeah. and training and entry level employment opportunities, but also moving to career opportunities. So, you know, resource recovery actually started in Foster Tunkari uh, 2017 and with a $60,000 contract to run the local tip, and that is now. A, a contract. We now run that particular site um, and have turned that into almost a business park around waste. And in 2012, um, the Westpac Foundation got behind that particular resource recovery model where they'd had 10% growth each year. They'd worked particularly with Aboriginal men coming out of prison with a really good track record where a lot of those staff are now supervisors and still working there and their kids are going to school and their kids are getting really great jobs. Mm. So it's, it's that intergenerational unemployment that that enterprise in, in particular in Foster Tunkari has worked away at and now they run all the transfer stations in that region and they also build as a community development agency uh, cultural capital and social capital into each site. So at that resource recovery facility, um, what was just, you know, a guy with a wheelbarrow is now we have managed the transitioning it from a landfill to a sort of state-of-the-art transfer station. We built the original tip shop and um, out of old parts from, from yep. the building in town and now we've just upgraded that with recycled materials so it's a, it's a better shopping experience for reuse and we have a uh, green bikes program where local kids that are having difficulties at school can go on this structured program to fix and repair a bike. We also have a men's shed with over 100 men on site uh, building salvaging timber and making products from that timber mm. and all of these people are heavily engaged in their community we run composting workshops and upcycling workshops out at the green space there so it's the idea of turning what is just a waste facility into a destination that yep. also prioritizes reuse and repair before you get to recycling because that's a better outcome but it also we see these as building capital and social capital for the community so every morning from nine to one you'll have all the men's Turning up to the men's shed, we've got women starting to run upcycling workshops for themselves and creating a space for themselves. We've got, yeah, a whole lot of different rich, poor, black, white people engaging together on that site. So the Westpac Foundation got behind that particular model and we have been selling that to other councils, particularly in higher unemployment areas. Mm. And Resource Recovery Australia has now grown with a couple of tip shops on the south coast in Dunmore and Mossdale yep. with Windsor Caribbean Council and Shell Harbour Council. We also, in those sites, um, one has a tinkerage, which has a fantastic upcycling sculptor artist that works two days a week where people can come and repair a chair or repair the blinds they were going to throw out because they were too long and they can be taught how to use a bunch of tools to actually repair something so they can reuse it and not throw it out at the tip. And our Mossdale resource recovery site has just launched its first green bikes program 
because it had a similar person like the crew we had in Tunkuri who was working with Bicycles for Change internationally to fill up cargo containers with the bikes from that were coming through the waste facility. Mm. Uh, and so now we've got this great three-way partnership at that site with the learnings from our Green Bikes program in Tunkuri to start doing workshops for local people to repair their bikes and tap into the community sector, but equally a relationship with Bicycles for Change internationally. And that's a partnership between Windsor Caribbean Council, Resource Recovery Australia, and uh, Bicycles for Change. So tapping into local people doing all that work. So Resource Recovery Australia now does quite a lot. We also have a mobile problem waste service in um, with Parramatta and Cumberland Councils that picks up things like paint, uh, paints and fluorescent tubes and um, up to 20 litres or kilos from residents in those areas, and that's the program we expect to roll out. And we also run the rabbage services for the ACT government. So uh, RRA has a lot of potential as well going forward. We've started doing some white goods collection drop-off, reusing and recycling those white goods in WA and in Balambi in New South Wales. And... We're doing some really interesting work in the textile space, including some of the textiles that are going to be at the last part of the mattress waste stream um, and what we do with those. Is I will talk to in the soft landing part. So, Sarah, can you tell us a little bit more about the work you're doing with Soft Landing, Green Connect and Waste Aid? In December 2015, uh, RRA took over Soft Landing Mattress Recycling from Mission Australia. That was a bit about a, we've been working together in a, in Illawarra particularly around collective impact about how can we grow and support each other together and alongside each other. Um, and it didn't really start as an acquisition piece. It was more about, you know, you do mattresses, we do transfer stations and reuse shops, you know, where are the collaboration opportunities? But we were actually so aligned in this waste to wages agenda that we started negotiations about actually it would be great to be under the one banner. And um, we think we could gain some efficiencies and it was a really natural fit. So that went ahead. And since then, um, we've also been really willing to invest in soft landing to be all it can be. And they did have a lot of potential to be national. So it's now a national mattress recycling social enterprise working across Sydney, Illawarra, Newcastle in New South Wales, here in the ACT and surrounds, um, and Wangara in WA and the surrounds there too, as well as Melbourne. And... To date, they've diverted 600,000 waste mattresses from landfill and they recover approximately 75%. So that's the steel that we have partnerships with Bluescope, for instance, and it becomes new steel roof sheeting mm. and other products. The timber becomes kindling and mulch and animal bedding and the foam becomes carpet underlay. So that not only saves new virgin materials being extracted, but also that amount of mattresses equates to about 440,000 cubic metres of landfill space saved. Wow. So that's often what we have to communicate. The money for soft landing doesn't come from necessarily selling those waste streams um, back into new products. That's just a really high environmental outcome. But the cubic metres of landfill space save does have a dollar value, but also the contracts we have with local government retailers um, and manufacturers and the commercial sector are what also makes that business work financially mm. uh, and people are willing to pay for that outcome. So that business services over 115 contracts around the country and we are looking to expand into Queensland and Tasmania and Adelaide. Soft Landing has also worked with industry partners around product stewardship movement to build and launch a soft landing product stewardship scheme for end-of-life mattresses and there's a really great book for people that want to know more about product stewardship as a policy going forward by Helen Lewis uh, that will be referenced in this article and that's been a really long process so 
before new resources took over soft learning, there was already the founders, uh, Andrew and Bill, had been doing some great work with the industry partners around what that would look like. And obviously you're getting competitive manufacturers and retailers sitting around a table together to, to have a transparent and equal system yep. to, to divert mattresses from landfill. And we have achieved that and it's been a fantastic but long journey. And so the founding members of that scheme are AHB, Sealy uh, and Temper as the manufacturers and sleep makers. And the retailers are people, we have Harvey Norman, Domain, Snooze, Zenbeds and Bedshed and Ikea have just signed up. And then we also have supply chain members including Joyce Foam, Cavestro and Thermatech. So that's been so fascinating because it, it also, as well as having all those partners, we're working really closely with UNSW's Sustainable Materials Research and Technology Centre on that last 25% of the mattress. We're looking at a particular machine that can convert different combinations of timber, textile and plastic into new products. And the kind of conversations you're seeing in this circular economy is, well, what if you could make products that were then put back into the manufacturing? And the designers of bedding are talking to us about how they design beds so that they can get the best environmental outcome. Mm. So it's, it's a really exciting space. And I, we also have partners, including the International Fleet Products Association, where we're being asked to talk about the fact we're running product stewardship as a social enterprise, as the mattress recycler. And that's got a very high level of social outcome, environmental outcome embedded in it. And we're being asked to speak internationally now about, about that model. But it did take a long time to build. Mm. And it's, you know, that's also why we do, look, we want to provide a national service and we've been building online booking systems and things. So that's soft landing. The other one is Green Connect. So it's a nice experience full circle for me. It's, um, Jess Moore has really been managing Green Connect. Robin and I were really very much the founders that looking to sort of get it off the ground and, and, and find a great manager. And we did find that in Jess Moore who took it to the next level as well as building this amazing um, urban farm, you know, and all credit to people like Adrian Thompson that were also there at the beginning. And it's now a fantastic, um, they have over 250 veggie box drops coming out of that farm. It's embedded at the back of the refugee intensive language school. So it's almost a classroom outside the back of the school. And it was land that wasn't being particularly used. And they've, they've built this fantastic um, urban farm. So they um, provide 114 young people and former refugees work in growing their food and reducing waste landfill through waste-wise event management, which is what Robin and I work working on early on and Jackie Besgrove does a great job of running that. So they joined us in February 2018. We were really supportive of them being attached to their local community development agency but they started to see the journey we were on and that they, it would probably be, there would be efficiency gains in joining us as a group because we're in the industries in which they operate and we have a 30-year track record so for tendering and for efficiencies mm. and we also had a strong value alignment. It's been really amazing to bring them on board two years after bringing Soft Landing on board. Yeah. And what's interesting is we were all originally together at that first collective impact group about how can we all help each other and that was very much more going to be side by side but now we're actually working together. It does make it easier to collaborate and we've got any day now you turn up at Soft Landing Balambi, you might have some Green Connect staff talking to some RA staff about, you know, a project together and it's fantastic. So... There is one more acquisition and I can unpack. We, we didn't actively seek this out to happen, but we have attracted organisations wanting to go on the journey. We've gone on having scaled and grown Resource Recovery Australia and then soft landing over those years. So Wayside Australia um, was founded in 2014 by Anne Prince, who's the leader, um, leading consultant in the waste industry. And it was set up 
to provide community-based waste solutions in the most disadvantaged communities in Australia, Asia and the Pacific, and they're part of the Waste Aid International Network. And, you know, at the moment, Aboriginal communities says over 70% have no regular rubbish collection service. So this is really more not a social enterprise. It's actually about working with people like the um, New South Wales Environmental Protection Authority of the EPA and, and, and Aboriginal Affairs and people about advocacy and, and what are we going to do about that? That's not acceptable mm. in 2018, if ever. So um, we, we do a lot of advocacy work in that and work really closely and the EPA have really come on that journey um, as well as the local Aboriginal Land Council and we've run eight projects in eight discrete communities. But uh, Waste Aid originally was its own organisation and on, in March they have come across to us as well. So we've now basically got these four... Uh, waste social enterprises and projects in Resource Recovery Australia, Soft Landing Mattress Recycling, Green Connect and Waste Aid Australia. And it's, it's a really exciting journey going forward about, you know, how we can, where do we work together? We don't have much overlap in the, we've got really specific um, focus areas that we each work on um, in terms of our businesses um, and who we work with. But there's definitely opportunities for staff to go on to comments across businesses or there's real careers for people. So what was, you know, 25 people working at the site in Tunkari, those people, we've had people move to Balambi to work at Soft Landing or there could be people that go on as a comment out to Waste Aid. There's also a lot more technology and a lot of different partners involved, which including retail partners where there are job pathways outside our business or there are just, we have four full-time IT staff based out of Foster Tunkari now, you know, so it's, what's exciting to me is we've created a lot of employment in our head offices, which are Balandi and Tunkari, which are regional towns where we both started as social enterprises, um, where we're creating back-end jobs that are full-time jobs and really critical jobs for businesses that service beyond those areas. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's such a broader range of, of really interesting initiatives there, Sarah, that's for sure. And so many, many learnings from those years of experience in setting those up. So how do you see the social enterprise sector then changing over, over the coming years? I think um, the biggest challenge for social enterprise is, is how to sell, and I kind of hate that word, but it's social and environmental outcomes mm. and or to better intersect with government-funded community services, which I see as critical to society as well, and that is the government's responsibility. So I don't think social enterprise is a solution to everything, but I think it's a really powerful vehicle for people that don't want a sort of patronising program. They want a real job. And one of the critical things is that the social enterprises provide secure work with support around it and it's not a precarious position that might end in six months. So mm. we can provide that. We can provide real jobs. But I do think that the impact market is a concern for me. I understand the intent and the motivation, but it feels like some of the offers in the social financing sector, for instance, uh, there was a report done with 66% report wanting a market return and a social return. And at the moment, it just feels like you know, we're trading, but we produce our social outcomes for free. And the risk in that is that I actually think social workers and community development workers are absolutely critical in our model and they're mm -hmm. being devalued in that process. So I understand when we say bid on a mattress contract that the council might not necessarily want to pay the full cost of what that social outcome is, yeah. but I think they can contribute to it. I think government can contribute to healthy community services that are government funded in in the areas they need to be where there's often 30 years of experience in community development agencies. And you do see sometimes these community development agencies starting to go, oh, my boss wants me to start a social enterprise. Or, mm. And I'm saying, well, if you don't have a product or service that creates jobs for the people that you want to create jobs for, and if you don't price it properly, that's going to be a really hard road and really precarious work. Mm. So 
I'm excited that if we can go in with all of that accumulated experience in each of those business areas, but work really strongly with community partners in the community development way, where, where they run homelessness services and drunk alcohol services and literacy services. So for us, I think the impact market needs to learn a bit that there is a value and they would in social work in our business model and there is a value in social outcomes that isn't free. It's incredibly skilled work and it's one of my interests in the new economy is that why are you know, childcare workers or community development workers or counsellors considered so low in the value chain in terms of what they mm. earn and, and their value in society. I think they're incredibly skilled people with a lot to offer and it is the critical piece to turning someone's life around within our business. And yeah. we found that you need a combination of having some of that in-house, but you need really strong relationships with the government-funded services in your area and that needs to be resourced too. That needs to be resourced in keeping the connection strong with the community service providers and in making sure that wraparound support is there. So for us, one of the benefits in Foster where we started is that we run a lot of the community services so that integration is very high and it's already there. It's often our own community services that can support people. Yeah. Um, and we know where people are at and when they can go back into the business or when they need time out and, and those things can be managed. But that's hard to do when there's a silo effect between community services and social enterprise. Yeah. Uh, and I think the impact investing market is a really exciting space but I think there has to be reality around people want to return any profit into social capital building and into their communities and into training their staff and into more HR and more support workers because people don't come into a social enterprise and all their problems are solved and they come out the other end. You know, life's not like that and it's mm. a bit more of sometimes people might relapse with issues or home stuff impacts their life. or And our businesses need to be able to manage that realistically because we do have to service our customers. So... I guess the, it's just raising the profile of that social work is part of social enterprise and the impact on productivity is there, but we can manage it um, yep. if the social component of our business is valued and we're happy to work with government and philanthropy to make that work, mm. but also it can't just be done for free. Yeah. And another real trend I'm seeing is the mergers to gain efficiencies and I think you know we are looking to write a case study on that journey that we've been on and mm. it's, it's been great and, of course, there's pros and cons of you know, people quite like to know that they're working with just someone in their local area um, and I really understand that and that's where I've come from originally. Yeah. But what I'm seeing is by having these four businesses, we've been able to employ people like, and I always tell her I'm so excited to have her, but we have a technical writer for the first time who can write high-quality tenders um, and who understands waste at a very high technical level. And each one of us as an individual enterprise would have struggled to have that position, but as four, we can have that position mm. um, servicing all the and it's been a massive asset. So we are able to, at scale, start to get specialised roles. And I think that's the only way you can run a really efficient business and get people working in the social space, working in the financial management space, working in the marketing and sales space and working in the um, technical and tender writing space. It, all those things are often done by one or two people sharing that whole load. Yep. When you grow, you can, you can have a better impact. Mm. So I'm working with a lot of different social entrepreneurs then, Sarah. What do you see as the most important traits of a social entrepreneur? Yeah, I think that social entrepreneurs are really good at challenging the social societal status quo and that's what I think they're there for and they definitely do from my experience with many. Yep. I think they're really good at identifying a social, environmental, cultural issue that's not okay um, and leveraging the people and stakeholders and funds to address it. Uh, they can create a vision for change and they can attract people to achieve it and they tend 
to without stereotyping go above and beyond with multiple skill sets in the early years because they don't have the money to have all the people they need. Mm. And I think that's a critical role they play. What I see a lot of though is once that stage is over, there's a really different lot of skills and people that you need. So I think one of the most important traits of a successful social entrepreneur is knowing where and when your social entrepreneur role needs to retreat and redefine itself. Mm. So building a social venture from scratch requires very specific skill set and once built, the skill set required changes over time and it is a big challenge. I've found being in a lot of startups, getting something from concept to actually happening is, is where I often thrive. But telling those people, look, your job is just two days a week at the moment, you might need that other job, but, you know, it's really hard to manage and some people are like, I want more hours and you're like, this is where we're at. But eventually if you're running like we are now, it's an $18 million organisation at Community Resources and we do have a lot of specialist people now and we have built that brick by brick. We now need really good general managers. We need people who are really good in operations and logistics and financial management and risk management and community development and social support and HR. So marketing and sales and I would say one of the joys of building a larger social enterprise is being able to recruit those people having the business that can recruit them but it requires a social entrepreneur to reinvent their role which I have done and I in the past I've tended to go to the next venture this time I'm reinventing myself within our business to do the things I think I'm best at Um, Mm -hmm. and again mainly I have a team that that does it I'm just kind of curating that almost yeah but it, it, it's a tricky journey and some founders become really great managers, but I do think you've got to have that self-awareness when you need to reinvent yourself within your own business. Mm. I think it's, it's a fantastic insight, that's for sure. So, I mean, what, is, what are some of the most common reasons that you believe social enterprises fail then? I do feel like I can now reflect funnily on this. I have seen a lot and I think that sometimes the passion for the vision. I once got a really good piece of advice that said you can have more impact if you are dispassionate. And I have mm. been trying to practice that. And I am the passionate vision entrepreneur person, but I, I'm really much more self-aware and, and understanding that, you know, if you're dealing with a council, those people are at capacity doing just business that they have to get done. Yeah. And, and your particular passion and vision isn't high on their radar and, and you don't want to thrash them with it. So I think the intent is because, Social entrepreneurs aren't happy with the societal status quo, and I think that stuff's more visible now about gender equality, um, cultural diversity. A lot of that stuff hasn't been okay for a really long time, so people are, can be quite passionate about it and when they get an audience. But I think you have to be dispassionate about the fact, is there actually a product or service in this for a social enterprise? And mm. I think sometimes being in love with your own vision and passion and idea and not being prepared to ask those really tough questions Yeah. Um, can mean eventually it will fail and, and sometimes that journey is great. There's been people who've been on that journey and, and educated people about that journey really transparently and I think that's fantastic and we need more of that in the social enterprise sector. Yeah. Well, I certainly think there's there's some fantastic uh, insights there, that's for sure. So for all of the social entrepreneurs and everyone else who's just keen to create some positive change, whether they're working in the waste services sector or, or more broadly, Sarah, what books would you recommend uh, to our audience? Sure. Well, there's a few books that cover the various spectrum. That So one book around this whole product stewardship where manufacturers and retailers, everyone takes responsibility for waste that's great, is Product Stewardship in Action by Helen Lewis. So mm. that's a great book. I also think there's a reframing work in terms of social enterprises, a great book I just got given, 100-year life, living and working in an age of longevity, about maybe it's that instead of having education, employment, retirement. We have education, training, employment, 
retraining employment mm. and then retirement and that, that maybe people can we, – we probably need to reinvent work and, and, and that's what social enterprise is trying to play a role in is yeah. more people working less um, over longer periods of time. There's also Social Traders is a really great website to go to with a whole lot of case studies and resources about social enterprise and a whole lot of people that can provide really good advice on, mm. on what's required. There's a really good podcast I just listened to this morning by Jason Twill about community versus individual wealth that really covers this stuff about equi social equity and environmental sort of repair that has to happen in society. Mm. And... I guess on the refugee space, I did have a book, Arrival City, that talks about the largest migration in history as we reshape our world, about there is mass urbanisation happening and also cultural diversity is something I haven't unpacked, but at the heart of all our enterprises is that I think better decisions get made when you have a diverse workforce. So first Australians, newly arrived migrants, men, women, you know, I have been in the waste industry and often been stacked with, with white older guys and yep. it's... That's a whole other journey in itself, but those people are really valuable. But I think when you have a really diverse decision-making group, you're reflecting the actual society you're working in um, more effectively. So another great book is Governomics by a friend of mine, Miriam Lyons, and Ian McCauley about the role of government as well and not letting government off the hook. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's some fantastic resources there, and I'll make sure that there's links through to those uh, those books and resources at the, at the bottom of the article, Sarah. So, Sarah, thank you so much for being so generous with your experience, uh, insights, and time today. We certainly appreciate it, and we'll look forward to touching base with you again in the future. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for listening to Impact Boom. You'll find links to the initiatives, people and resources mentioned in this podcast on impactboom.org. Please leave your comments below and remember, we'll be publishing fresh inspiration and insights to help you create positive impact every week on the website, Facebook page and Twitter.